Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Nizar Hassan, joined as usual by Benjamin Red for actually the second self-quarantine recording of our podcast. How are you, Ben? I mean, considering the gravity and the hugeness of the situation, I I think, you know, I'm I'm holding it together pretty well. However, I did like binge watch all of Tiger King last night on Netflix. So <laughs> I don't know if that's a good uh, measure of where my mental health is or what, but... Yeah, basically, Netflix is like 70% of, of time spent on anything, really, these days uh, for me, too. Anyway, we've got a... We've got a bunch of news this week that we want to talk about. No specific topic that we'll be, we will be diving into, but more or less uh, like um, uh, an overview of, of the main things that have been happening in terms of uh, coronavirus, in terms of the economy, obviously the main things, but also some other stuff. Yeah, with, with Lebanon on, on lockdown, things have not been moving quite as fast, I don't think, uh, as they usually do in Lebanese politics uh, and, and in just the current events. But a few things did happen this week that we think are quite important. First off, we just had this scene of authorities tearing down the Thoudra camp. On Friday night and Saturday morning, the authorities went in and took a bunch of those since down. Yeah, so th- there was a total, like a decision to totally dismantle and destroy all the tents and in the area. It wasn't like uh, they had a specific problem with one or two tents and they wanted to deal with it. It was a decision by the Minister of Interior, and um, he made it clear because he released the press uh, release, or his office released a statement after this happened. So what happened is that Mohammed Fahimi, our Interior Minister, gave the order to the internal security forces to go to downtown and basically destroy the tents. It was quite surreal as a, as a scene because they were like breaking the tents, you know, like forcefully without even asking people to do anything about them. So no one was asked to dismantle their tents properly so that they don't have to, you know, uh, go to garbage and they can be used again. Uh, I think one of the points is that they don't want us to use the tents again. But anyway, um, so all the tents in Marty Square, it was full of them. And Azari, uh, in the parking lot and near the, the, the building Azari, and in Riyadh Sulah were destroyed. People who resisted uh, this act were arrested. Uh, I don't know, but I think released um, very soon after, but still they were detained by police. And uh, it was clear that it was not related to Corona. In the statement by uh, Fahimi's office, he meant, he he states clearly that the Corona things, the Corona measures were taken last week. This was only um, because, I mean, not only, but this came, this decision to destroy the tents and to end the protest there came after some scuffle between protesters and a foreign ambassador. He didn't give any details, but basically it was more political than than like public health related, even in his own words. Yeah. And, and the thing that really strikes me about this is that it happened basically the first night of the curfew, uh, which was a new thing. On Thursday, cabinet met, and they they did a couple of things. They extended the amount of time that we're going to be on lockdown by two weeks, and so now lockdown is going to end not on the 29th of this month, but on April 12th. But also, they said, and starting basically immediately, uh, within 24 hours, there's going to be a curfew from 7 p.m. until 5 a.m. in the morning. Uh, and this sort of came out of left field. Uh, I didn't, at least I didn't know anything about it before they announced it. And this night was the first night that that curfew was uh, really put into effect. And what did they do? They went into downtown, destroyed the uh, the Souder camp. 
it's just the ultimate opportunity, right? It's um, because we know for sure that uh, just from any simple political analysis that the government needs to end the revolution mode and its manifestation. And the physical manifestation is very important. So ending the occupation of, the, of downtown Beirut, uh, the popular kind of occupation of downtown Beirut is uh, very important on the short, on the medium and the long term. It was just that now it was, I think, the ideal opportunity for them to do that without anyone being able to, to resist. But just one thing I want to also mention here is that obviously this curfew thing, we're not used to this so much uh, lately in the last at least 10 years, I guess. Uh, we're not used to this kind of measures of, uh, of curfews and other stuff. Some people are calling for a state of emergency, uh, like Wally Jumlat and other politicians are saying, yeah, we need a full state of emergency, etc. It's going in the, in, the, in, the, in the scary direction, I feel like we don't need all of this in order to handle corona. There's more about, there's a lot of politics that is hidden behind all of these little details about, you know how to handle the, the situation from a security perspective, et cetera. Absolutely, absolutely. And and just to give our listeners an update on, on the coronavirus here in Lebanon, we are recording this on Sunday morning. And as of last night, there were 412 cases that were reported in Lebanon. That's 21 more than the day before. Now, if you compare this to last week, we had 230 confirmed cases at the same point last week. So we've nearly doubled that in the span of a week. But on the other hand, we haven't had any huge days. Like last Saturday, when we came to you with that 230 uh, confirmed cases number, the day before, we had had 67 new cases reported, a huge spike that luckily we have not continued to see. Uh, so I don't know if that was just a reporting issue or if there were actually seven, uh, 67 new cases that, that came about that day. But instead, this week, we've been sort of like plugging along uh, with anywhere between 18 and 37 new cases per day. And, and so uh, this is not great, but also not, we, we don't know whether Lebanon's going to go worst case scenario or not. Obviously, all of the measures that uh, the government and that the uh, that doctors and nurses and hospitals are taking are, is meant to sort of flatten the curve, right? And sort of spread it out um, so that it doesn't, so the number of cases doesn't actually overwhelm the health uh, system here in the country. I think so far, this specific objective is more or less met if we believe the numbers and if we, I mean, because there's always this question of whether, you know, there are more cases than we know about and how much, how transparent things are, etc. And uh, what's happening in, in informal settlements or refugee camps, etc. So we're not, we can't always trust the numbers, but if the numbers are true, I think we're doing an okay job in terms of flattening the curve or, or not maybe flattening the curve, but... Uh, making sure it doesn't completely overwhelm the system because we were really worried that would happen sooner than now, you know, a few weeks, few weeks ago. Well, but we're still concerned about that, right? Maybe just happening a little bit later at this point. Fatima Asaya of the University of Alberta had a few tweets uh, this past, or actually I believe it was yesterday on Saturday, that she said that we are going to actually overwhelm the health system on April 23rd or around April 23rd if cases double every five days. If they double every seven days, we'll, we'll reach it on April 30th. If it's every 10 days, around May 10th is where we're, when we're going to overwhelm our health system. So there still is a very real possibility that we are going to overwhelm uh, our doctors and nurses and hospitals, but that hopefully can get pushed out far enough so that we never actually reach that, uh, reach that level. Mm. No, it looks scarier with the, with the numbers and, and the real scientific information than my impression. 
Yeah, and and Asaya also said, you know, that <laughs> you know we we we're going to need to flatten this curve for six to seven months probably to stay within capacity, which mm. I don't know how that translates to measures on the ground, uh, you know, whether that actually means curfews and uh, lockdowns and stuff like that, or if maybe we come up with a different approach. But she says that a lot of things need to happen, you know, obviously the enforcement of containment measures, but also increased testing and contact tracing and also socioeconomic support to citizens so that the guy who provides for his family and has to go out and make money every day in order to feed his family doesn't actually need to go out of the house anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, this is something that uh, is being talked about the world over, but it uh, it's it's also very important here in Lebanon, especially given the economic situation. And and, and then at the same time, there's also things that the Lebanese that, that the Lebanese health system really needs to do on the on just the the capacity side. You know, freeing more beds up at uh, at the public and private hospitals, as well as you know just training health professionals. Or for various things and, and 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 doing other things like identifying non-hospital settings for uh, self-isolation of mild cases, she tweeted. And also, I just want to note uh, on a sad note that a man in his 70s with a chronic illness has also died yesterday, bringing uh, Lebanon's death toll from coronavirus up to eight. A week ago, it was four. So that has doubled. True. And we had some note, another notable name last week we talked about Mohamed Safadi being uh, testing positive for uh, coronavirus this week. We have Maisha Dia, who was until recently the Minister of Administrative uh, Development uh, affiliated to the Lebanese forces. But overall, she's like a media figure, long time kind of uh, media figure on, on Lebanese TV who was uh, who was subjected to an assassination attempt uh, in, the, in the first decade of the century. So uh, she's quite a, a symbolic figure in terms of, you know, uh, people who were targeted during the the era where there was a big clash between the Syrian regime dominance and the anti-Syrian regime political forces in Lebanon and the anti-Syrian regime media establishment, etc. Um, anyway, so people were worried about her health, etc. We don't know. So far, she's doing okay. She's being taken care of. But yeah, this is the other kind of the latest of our famous people getting corona. Right. And also very quickly, we, we spoke a little bit about the measures the cabinet uh, took as far as uh, imposing this curfew uh, that came out of nowhere, which sort of makes me question if they know things that we don't or not. But also the cabinet approved 75 billion lira for families in need, which isn't isn't nearly enough money to really make a dent, uh, but they are doing something. I mean, and finally, also, right? It, it, it was insane that uh, they have made two speeches about Corona and never mentioned any of the relief or policy or the social kind of measures that would be taken but still it's it's right. obviously it's obviously not at all of the size that we we expect i mean it is of the size that we expect not of the size that we actually need but uh at least you know it's on the table now it's uh, being talked about yeah exactly exactly and and speaking of governmental plans and non-governmental plans uh hezbollah rolled out a coronavirus action plan basically basically saying they're prepared to deploy uh, 1,500 doctors, 3,000 nurses and EMTs, some 20,000 volunteers, prepping you know dozens of medical centers and potential medical centers, potentially using hotels and resorts if need be as well, basically rolling out this uh, huge plan, this huge operation that seems to fill a hole, you know, in what the state has not been doing, at least not systematically, right? Now, now having said that, the Hezbollah official uh, Hashem Safiuddin says that their plan is meant to complement, not replace the government response. 
also concerning Corona, one of the big things that um, turned into a political affair this week was the issue of the Lebanese stranded abroad. So a lot of Lebanese people are not into, not in like a state of permanent migration abroad. They're either students or you know businessmen or workers abroad, etc. And many of them want to come back to Lebanon apparently and have been filing complaints that the shutdown of the airport and uh, the, all the measures that the Lebanese government has taken has prevented their return. And I don't know why, I don't know how yet. I should dig more into this at least. But uh, this turned into a political thing and it became kind of the number one issue that everyone is talking about in the last two days. Right. And, and it's important to remember that it's not just because of coronavirus that these people reportedly want to come back home. If you're, say, a student who is, I don't know, in Italy studying abroad, coronavirus is one thing. But then also when you try to use your Lebanese debit card or credit card, if you can't really use it to get money out of your Lebanese bank account, then you're, you're really, you know, up, or up a creek without a paddle. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I can imagine all sorts of situations uh, combining factors from coronavirus and from uh, the the Lebanese banking chaos causing real problems for people abroad. But the way that it has been discussed makes it look like uh, a very political thing, although they didn't even make it clear what's so political about it. So Nabih Birri, Speaker of Parliament, leader of the Amal movement, uh, said on Saturday that he threatened actually to withdraw support from uh, the government unless uh, Diab and the government changes its policy on the repatriation of the Lebanese citizens. Uh, so to give context, the cabinet had met on Thursday. It formed a, meet, a committee specifically to discuss this. Uh, on Friday, Diab said, made the statement that no one can come before you know the end of the lockdown on April 12th. Uh, and then th- things became much like his his tone or the general tone of the government became much softer and more com- flexible and more positive about repatriation after Birri made this threat on Saturday. And also on Saturday night, Nasrallah spoke, and we're going to talk about that in a second. And he uh, he also mentioned that uh, he supported basically the same position of Birri saying uh, the government should not wait. Uh, it should seek to bring back those people as soon as they want to come back. Yeah, we've got this double barrel action on Saturday, right? <laughs> Both Birri and Nasrallah coming out and telling Diab, this thing that you announced yesterday, that's a non-starter. And, and other po- uh, politicians in, in the country as well were very unhappy with this. Yeah. And speaking of Corona, one of the biggest or maybe probably the biggest uh, political talk show in the, in the country, uh, Marcel Ghanem's on MTV, has kind of uh, become dedicated to discussing coronavirus and uh, collecting donations, crowdfunding, mostly from big politicians and businessmen and controversial people. But that's uh, let's put that aside for a second. And um, so basically, Ghanem has been kind of accepting requests and co- or, or complaints or whatever, and um, especially requests for supports and relief uh, on his show, live on his show. And uh, one of the things that happened this week that ca- caused quite an outrage is that he dismissed a call to provide nurses and hospital workers with housing that is close to their jobs in the hospitals. Uh, so what was hap- what happened is that people who, I think nurses and people who work in, in medical staff, they sent, uh, I think on Twitter, to the show that, you know, we need housing that is close to, our, to the hospitals so that we don't risk bringing back the infection. We don't risk, you know, infecting our families when we go back home. And he said, you know, yeah, everyone can make any demand that they want now. He, he, he went on this weird rant where he was like, 
yeah, everyone wants to make demands now. What are what kind of demands are these? Uh, you know, the country is broke. We don't have this. Is not a priority. I don't know what. And it this was really weird. Yeah. And then this was live on air during his heavily watched uh, Thursday night show. Yeah, yeah, really, really heavily watched. It's like the only show that is like very, very big in terms of uh, audience. Like everyone knows when Sarlwat is happening. You know, it's all over Twitter. Uh, I think a million people watches every watch every episode, so it's quite a, a thing. Um, so yeah, it was very weird and very rude, to be honest. And uh, it was uh, it caused an uh, it provoked a little outrage. And then Rudy Hashash, his producer, I think is production supervisor i don't know what his official title is but his producer uh he made things way worse with a tweet that says nurses i'm i'm quoting here the tweet said nurses and doctors in some countries drive 45 minutes to get to the hospital they are working in lebanese doctors and nurses should suck it up and do their job and stop whining uh, end quote so this is yeah. i mean first of all what, what are you thinking yeah what are you thinking also are you thinking i'm not sure um no really i mean <laughs> right <laughs> i mean first of all he was it shows that you know he doesn't understand the main problem it's not the driving they're not worried about the non-existing traffic they're talking about infecting their families and uh so this is not the main issue here at all whether they drive 45 or 15 minutes and then second, why are you taking this very kind of confrontational stance against those people? I don't understand it. It was just a desperate attempt to get attention. Like, I really don't see it in any other way. But anyway, like, there were a lot of reactions to it. Obviously, um, the nurses syndicate had the response. It was a very weak response, in my opinion. But they met with the head of the syndicate, met with, with Marcel Ghanem, and they told him, oh, we are not very happy about this. And he said, no, no, don't worry. It was just like a, a matter of, you know, um, the uh, saying this is not maybe the first priority because of, of the financial difficulties of the state, etc. But I respect the medical teams and the nurses, so don't worry about that. And they kind of seemed happy with that uh, explanation. <laughs> it's, Which is it's very weird. ridiculous. Uh, yeah. I mean, like he he basically doubled down through his producer uh, Rudy Hashish. Like he he doubled down on his position, and his producer didn't even apologize either on Twitter. Like his pinned tweet is basically calling everybody trolls for being legitimately angry at him because he said something super boneheaded. Yeah, yeah, and it's really not the first time that Marcel reveals his, his I don't know his other side or his true colors or whatever. He's he's been known for kind of being the establishment guy, like a representative of the establishment and and the media establishment in Lebanon, uh, at least uh, after the the you know the the Syrian regime forces left Lebanon. And and he he he's been known to kind of whitewash the uh, the reputation of politicians and bankers and other people in power in his show, especially when it comes to people in the size of Riyad Salemi, for example, who he hosted uh, recently on his show and was very very nice to him while he was Riyad Salemi was probably one of the most insulted men in the country in terms of you know, the popular uprising and people's uh, perception of the central bank policies. So he, he kind of, he's, he built his whole career around the, the idea of being the one who gets the biggest names uh, on TV rather than the one who asks them the hard questions. And uh, just to follow up on that as well, the producer also, the, the producer in question that we spoke about, he also produces videos for Banque de Liban, for MEA, owned by Banque de Liban, for Casino de Liban, 
owned by Bucky mm-hmm. Bond. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I mean, they're they're all sort of they come from the same sort of circle, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, you you mentioned earlier uh, that uh, Hassan Nasrallah spoke last night, Saturday night. The the, the speech was was probably not quite like the one before that. Yeah, the one before the one we talked about last week was specifically about Fakhuri. He was basically defending Hezbollah's reputation and position uh, when it comes to uh, to Amr Fakhuri, the the former SLA commander that we talked about many times, who was rescued or smuggled basically against the law by by a U.S. helicopter. Anyway, he, it was a very specific kind of speech. This week, it was more of his usual uh, speeches where he go over he goes over uh, domestic affairs, regional affairs, etc. And this one, in terms of domestic politics, was or domestic affairs was mostly uh, focused on in the economy and Corona. And he didn't say a lot of breaking things, but interestingly, he had a very he kind of put on his leftist hat. He had a very you know, uh, aggressive speech towards uh, the economy and the powerful forces in the economy, more or less. He said the, that the price increases in the markets, the recent, very recent price increases in the market ha- don't have any uh, economic sense and they are because of uh, monopolies in specific sectors in trade and uh, import, meaning in, in basically the monopolies and oligopolies that everyone knows exist in, in import. He blamed them for increasing the prices and he also attacked the banks, uh, saying, you know, they're not doing enough for the country. They should be helping the country more after making tens of billions of dollars in profits. And he um, he said that the the banks not doing, not taking proactive action to help the students who are abroad studying. And, you know, people you mentioned who need a debit card and basically can't use it because they're abroad now. He said that the banks can fix that if they want to. So this was kind of the final straw. And he also said the contribution that the Association of Banks made um, of $6 million to help combat corona as coronavirus is not uh, is quite minimal uh, and should be more seeing their, their much bigger kind of uh, scale uh, in terms of profits. On this point, I mean, I totally I agree and I like that Nasrallah is talking about this. I think that he's kind of bringing uh, closer uh, the people that he alienated with his last speech, all the people on the left who kind of like Nasrallah, but they are leftists more or less on socioeconomic affairs and class politics. Uh, he's ca- kind of bringing them back in this speech, kind of fix the mess that he created in the last one, maybe, I don't know. But it seemed like, yeah, this. It, I, I'm always interested to see when politicians take the turn to have class-based rhetoric, political rhetoric. And it's interesting to see Nasrallah attack the big merchants and the bankers. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and meanwhile, though, while Nasrallah was exhorting these banks to do things, the banks themselves have been basically turning off the tap. And are you you said you actually called up several uh, people that you know who bank at different banks to ask them, are they still giving you any money, right? Yeah, so I basically went over the big four, uh, Blombank, Audi, uh, Bankmed, Biblos. I mean, I just did a little survey of my friends, to be honest, and called up a couple of banks. What we, what I got is that, you know, the big four tell you the story now. The dollars are not being given. The, the withdrawal um, restrictions are, are stronger and more, you know, severe than ever. Uh, because, for example, we have the first thing, first component the first factor is the the policy of the bank uh, meaning whether you can withdraw dollars and whether you can withdraw them from atm machines or from the counters if it's only from the counters then during this whole lockdown period you won't get any of your money and uh, then some banks also decided to stop 
giving dollars altogether. The bank I deal with, Bank Med, told me there are no more dollars and we, we will tell you when this changes. So, and they won't because they don't inform their customers of anything important, but it doesn't matter. The, what matters is that they're not giving me my dollars back. And um, this is a final policy for them now. Biblos Bank, no dollars till they open again. Audi, you can withdraw, but only from counters and the counters are only for emergencies now. So you can't. And Blum Bank, uh, th- there are no US, no dollars available in ATM for local accounts and only small amounts for, for fresh money. So basically the big four are not giving out the dollars. Th- that's basically the, the, the worst situation we have in terms of access to USD accounts uh, so far. And meanwhile, the exchange rate dipped even further this week. As of Friday, it was trading between 27.50 and 28.25 uh, for uh, buy and sell against the dollar. Um, so basically, we are flirting with uh, historic numbers. Uh, 28.50 is the highest I've seen, uh, maybe 3,000. I've heard from some people's the highest numerically that we've ever gone in the past back in 1992. And now we're basically at, at this level, at least numerically again. M- meanwhile, the government is supposed to be jumping in and doing things, especially with regard to banks, with regard to capital controls. There was a capital control bill that uh, was before cabinet this week. They uh, apparently talked about it some during their Tuesday meeting, but then the finance minister withdrew the bill because there were so many people, I guess, who were opposed to certain parts of it in the cabinet. So right now, that's really sort of up in the air, whether this whether the cabinet will be able to pass a capital controls bill or not. And of course, what is in what is going to be in this bill as well? That's the big question. Yeah, definitely. And the two things that the bill is doing or should do is define what is legal in terms of the bank's practices towards their customers. Like, are there, are there limitations on dollars, dollar withdrawals, uh, you know, officially legal and allowed and, you know, specified for so that they are um, common across all banks and not arbitrary. But also um, to protect, you know, small account owners like myself, for example, to kind of have access to the little money that they have without, you know, finding uh, the banking, the, their own bank changing the policy uh, every other day. So these are the two most important kind of purposes, apart from reg- capital control, like basically regulating the money that is flowing out of the country which obviously it will do and this will not change because the banks have had their unofficial capital control in place for a while now so it's just to make things legal more or less and to maybe release a bit of tension between customers uh, and the banks but it's it's not definite that something will happen in that uh, on that file now because uh, it seems from political analysis that Nabih Birri is basically told Ghazi Wazni to withdraw the suggestion, the bill, the, the draft bill from discussion in the cabinet because he has many concerns about it. And um, it's been it's kind of in this gray area now where we don't know whether Hassan Diab has succeeded in bringing it back on the table or not. But he met with Berri and it was most probably uh, one of the main parts of their discussion. But if nothing happens, don't be surprised because, you know, it's just mostly about legalizing banks' practices. And that's not very urgent now because we're in lockdown. And in the current situation, people can't even go to the bank because only a few branches are open, if any. So, uh, you know, the whole issue of legalizing their practices with customers is not that uh, pressing. Right, right, right. Also, another big thing that, we're, that we've are that we been talking about this past week is a bunch of appointments to vacant positions. The four vice governors of the central bank, uh, the government's commissioner to the central bank, uh, and members of the Banking Control Commission and the Capital Markets Authority. 
I mean, all these, these are big positions to be filled. And this week, there appeared to be sort of a spat that emerged between uh, the future movement and the free patriotic movement with future movement, more or less complaining that the FPM or, or somebody was trying to d do something uh, sort of under underhanded with these appointments. Yeah, and this is a very, very, very sensitive affair. So uh, we have talked about this uh, um, in the episode with Josh Shaban about restoring confidence in the economy. We talked about how important it is to fill those positions because those vacancies, vacancies in you know the vice governor position or in the commission to the central bank, etc., or inaction in any of these the commissions is very uh, is very problematic because there is no public. Uh, authority that over is overseeing basically the financial market and the banking sector effectively, especially when it comes to the Banking Control Commission as well, which has been very inactive. Uh, and Jad talked about the commission not meeting for 10 months, etc. So uh, the, the issue here is basically who to put uh, uh, in these positions. Yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised that there would be tensions between the FPM and the future movement when it comes to this, because we're talking about basically appointing people to the public apparatus that will be regulating the banking sector. So it's most definitely going to be an overrepresentation of bankers, but it's basically whose bankers uh, are in power, like which individuals from which banks or uh, connected with which banks, which interests are appointed in, in, in each position. And uh, FPM and Future have something in common, a lot of things in common, uh, but one of the main things is that uh, their class composition is, is very dependent on, on the bourgeoisie, on the private sector, kind of on the capitalists, more or less, private sector uh, businessmen, etc., uh, big money interests, but also specifically to the financial sector and the banking sector. We know BankMed in the case of Hariri and Cedrus Bank being kind of totally uh, in the two camps respectively uh, in the future movement and FPM camps. But we also have other connections uh, through, you know, individuals uh, and, and businessmen. Uh, so it's not surprising to me that they would be um, basically the biggest two forces fighting over these appointments. Can I just note here that we are once again talking about appointments and like high level appointments? <laughs> yeah. And in Lebanese politics, whenever you have a major problem between two parties, it's like a lot of the time it boils down to a difference over who's going to fill a certain role, right? And so yeah. here we are in the middle of a coronavirus outbreak, in the middle of financial Armageddon, basically, for the country, we have a political issue over appointments. I mean, it just goes to show you the politicians are still playing the same game, the same game as they always have. Definitely. And nothing really changed in that sense about how they how they approach these affairs. And I want to make a point here, which is, you know, appointments, as you're saying, appointments are so important. And we talked about this a long time ago when this podcast was just basically covering the elections why and how do parties really govern in Lebanon? When, when if, you, if you remember that conversation, it was, you know, all about showing your muscle in parliament, but actually, you know, getting the power mostly from the executive appointments and the executive authority and, uh, exactly. the, con and the contracts that you give out. And, you know, appointments are basically so important because they are, um, especially when you talk about, you know, the Banking Control Commission or the central the central bank, basically, uh, governorship. You're talking about uh, entities that are extremely centered to whether things happen the right way or not in the short term or the medium term in terms of the, the country dealing with the banks and how uh, are the banks 
interests against people's interests navigated and all of these questions so if you want to think about it in, in one way it's basically the, the reason why things happen and the reason why things don't happen like some things that we need to happen don't happen because of the wrong people in this uh, in these places you know like the bank and control commission should have had a very very active role during this whole chaos uh, since october or, or uh, september with the banks taking arbitrary measures and everything uh, we didn't see that role in any way the central bank has been completely in bed with the banks in a really fascinating way to the extent that I wonder whether Yad Salim is secretly the, on the, the owner of, you know, the biggest bank and he's not telling us. Uh, so, so it's really important because if you have the right people there, they can do things that are not happening now. So in other words, you know, activating the role of, uh, of uh, these positions, uh, but also, you know, the, the role of this, this whole apparatus in the coming period is so important in terms of, you know, managing the financial situation and monitoring closely uh, the, the the behavior of banks in a period of time where they will definitely lose a lot of profits compared to before with that restructuring and everything happening. But, you know, how everything is done and where the line between legal and illegal is drawn and everything is, is really up to these people more or less. So um, it's such a sensitive thing now. And uh, obviously they're not going to appoint anyone who is not you know approved by uh, by the big uh, forces in in, uh, in the private sector and in the banking sector but uh, yeah we should keep a close eye on that uh and finally one thing that i want to mention before we leave is uh the finance minister gave a presentation on friday on debt restructuring this was uh from the finance minister hazi wasni as well as his director general alain bifani and uh, Talal salman who is uh, one of the uh, people who works on debt. I believe he's technically with UNDP, uh, but at the finance ministry. And and this was fairly well received, I guess, mostly because they, they, they really laid out the situation without too much sugarcoating, maybe a little bit of sugarcoating, but not too much. Uh, for instance, some of the n- numbers that they gave, 45% of Lebanese live below the poverty line. Poverty line here is 400,000 Lebanese lira per month. Back in the old exchange days, you know, $270 a month, something like that. Now, closer to $200 a month. 22% of Lebanese live in extreme poverty. They said that unemployment was at 11.4%, which is lower than the numbers that we usually hear. Uh, Youth unemployment, though, uh, at 23.3%, also lower than the usual youth unemployment number that we hear. But, But regardless bad. These are bad numbers. These are all very, very bad numbers. They forecast inflation for this year to be 27%. Wild. They also estimated the economy contracted about 7% last year, and that they're forecasting it to fall another 12% this year. Now, some of those numbers, I I, I mean, they they sound better than maybe what we would think, but they're, they're all just, they're bad, and they're disastrously bad, and things could be uh, a lot worse than this as well. So as far as that goes in the presentation, they weren't doing happy talk. They weren't being Donald Rumsfeld saying everything is great or anything like that. Um, so that's good. However, on the other side of things, they, they didn't give a whole lot of specifics about the actual debt restructuring. Um, and so it was kind of a lightweight presentation on that end. People who watch these things really wanting a lot more information about exactly how the finance ministry intends to go about uh, this debt restructuring. 
Yeah, so when I hear these numbers, it's, it's, you know, it's painful how little we talk about the issues of, for example, poverty here. You know, we talk about unemployment a lot in terms of the state of the Lebanese economy. But in terms of poverty, I think we always underestimate how bad the situation is. You mentioned the 400,000 per month uh, amount, you know, as, as the, the high poverty line uh, and 45% of the population being below that. Okay, two things here. First of all, 400,000 is like around $140 now in the real uh, market rate, $140 per month. Second one is that when you're talking about 45% of the the population being uh, below this poverty line, living below this poverty line, we're talking about whole areas, okay? We're not talking about specific families that are poor anymore. We're talking about rural areas in Lebanon that are based on an agricultural income usually or dependent on agricultural income that have absolutely, you know, uh, no way to survive if they don't get a good season every year uh, from agriculture. And even when they do, in normal times, agricultural workers and small farmers make so little, it would absolutely fascinate you how they can even live on such um, low amounts of money in the same country that we're living in, you know, in Beirut. So 400,000 a month is more than what most agricultural workers that I've met uh, make in Akkar, for example. And another thing, you know, uh, it's it's fascinating that also we didn't see anything uh, by the government, any policies that are specifically targeting unemployment right now. You know, what are all the newly unemployed people going to do in addition to everyone else that has been has been unemployed for a while the the economy is contracting so that means that the unemployment problem will be you know getting much way worse next year so i don't know how high the numbers can go but we saw that happening in spain to a certain extent in italy and the impact if they didn't have the european union if they didn't have the eurozone if people couldn't migrate the impact the impact would have been completely devastating on these economies and it was anyway despite all the ways in which people find individual solutions to these things so in lebanon what kind of solution do we do we have and why is hassan diab's government or one of the ministries in the government for god's sake like they can't all be focusing on the same issues all at once you know they should be developing plans for different things what are the plans related to unemployment what are the plans related to housing people that might you know get kicked out of their house because they can't afford rent now the daily work daily workers that you know don't have uh, permanent job contracts and don't get paid uh, uh, regardless of their work or not people who pay, work as i don't know delivery people or, or agricultural workers etc these people are not going to get their money this this the coming period um, they're not going to be able to pay rent how is the government helping them they they've got an army of ministers for these plans what are all of these 20 ministers doing certainly there could be some greater level of planning of of crafting policies that does not mm-hmm. appear to be getting done at this point yeah definitely i mean what did we hear from hassan diab after you know the big populist rhetoric uh, that he gave us on on um, in his speech about debt restructuring when he announced it that you know we're defaulting on sovereign debt what did he give us in terms of actually supporting people that he was talking about in this time of crisis. What are the ministers doing, as you're saying? Really, what are they doing? I mean, I want to see a plan to support people who are newly unemployed, to, uh, you know, protect people from evictions, to to provide, you know, uh, affordable housing. These are the, you know, the needs of people, apart from immediate relief, which we obviously need. 
we need social policies now. It's time for social protection and social policies. It's not time for just like big, empty uh, populist rhetoric. I was never optimistic about this government. I, I felt it was kind of a, a banker's government or uh, just a, a counter-revolution in one way or another when this government was announced. But I'm extra uh, disappointed by how little this government is able to do. Like just basic policies, even if you don't implement all of them, Tell us what you're doing, if you're doing anything. Apparently, they're not really doing anything that is worth, uh, you know, covering. Well, um, you know, you, you got you to gotta do baby steps here, Nizar. So, you know, they, they cleaned out the Sauder camp. That's done. Tomorrow, I'm sure they'll just tackle socioeconomic in, uh, inequality. Yeah, easy day. Uh, oh, my God. Thank you, man. Thank you, man. My Sunday will be much better now. <laughs> Pri- priorities. Yeah, the priorities. priorities. <laughs> the priorities of the Lebanese uh, political elite is, are always like very easy to understand. <laughs> yeah. So I guess uh, that's uh, all the time we have for this week. Yeah, and everybody, please bear with us as we deal with this. We're, we're still ironing out the technical difficulties. I'm sure you can hear that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, yeah we're, we're doing our best. It, it's it's quarantine time, so cut us some slack. Uh, yeah, and the shout-out to, to, to our producer, Susan, for bearing with us. Also yeah, fine, For finding the solutions, but also for bearing with us <laughs> while recording. Because let's just say... Ben and I are not the most tech-savvy kind of people and we're not the most smooth uh, <laughs> colleagues when it comes to, you know, dealing with uh, some tech stuff. We say a lot of ums, yeah. <laughs> okay, that being said, thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back next week, we believe, with, with another episode. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.